This podcast is brought to you by Story King Books. Sign up now and get a free copy of my latest ebook, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. The link will be in the show notes. And now for today's episode. Welcome to the Story King Podcast, the show featuring inspirational conversations about the art and business of storytelling and living life. I'm your host, John Carlo, and today's guest is actor, mother, local political operative, rescue dog enthusiast, and avid traveler of America's Blue Highways, Wendy Geldner Hermes. Wendy Geldner Hermes began her acting career in 1988 after spending four years at DePaul University's Goodman School of Drama. After three years of soul-crushing auditions for unscrupulous casting directors, decades before the Me Too movement, Wendy realized she loved the craft of acting but hated the business. Upon leaving the business of show, she started a theater company with eight other friends and fellow Chicago actors and directors called The Griffin Theater. Wendy performed ran lights, punched soundboards, and hung drywall. After being transfixed about the inner workings of local politics while trying to help run a theater space, Wendy shifted her focus to politics by using her public speaking savvy to navigate local political campaigns from such various local offices as school boards, Illinois state reps, U.S. reps, and super PACs. During the 22 months of the SARS-CoV-2 pandemic, Wendy has been taking copious notes, recording data, watching task force meetings and saving the receipts on the changing tone of our politics. She is currently writing a book with the working title, For Those That Want It, How Policies, Protocols, Politics, and Propaganda of COVID-19 Began the Democratic Diaspora. Here is my conversation with Wendy Geldner Hermes. Wendy, welcome to the Story King podcast. Well, hello. Thanks for having me. Yes, and there's a bunch of things I'd like to discuss today. Hopefully, we'll get to all of them. But first, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? What is your story? (laughs) When someone asks me what my story is, I always laugh because um, I know a woman who's an actual storyteller in Australia, and she always starts off anytime she meets a person, what's your story? So so here's my story, John Carlo. Um, I am a uh, 56-year-old woman who has lived in the Midwest her whole life. I am originally from Wisconsin and have lived in Cook County, Illinois, um, which is the county that has the city of Chicago since 1973. Hmm. I have uh, my young adult life was spent working as a Chicago actor, um, which was kind of interesting um, to sort of be coming up in the ranks and being in the same sort of pool of people like um, Jeremy Piven and John Cusack, Mm. who are at the time, I mean, obviously (laughs) pursued their careers and had much more success than I. But um, it was an interesting time to be in Chicago um, during the 1980s, just to um, the music scene sort of um, coming about at that point. And um, just the actors that came out of, um, Second City, and so it was. It was an it was a raw, raw, interesting time to be in Chicago working in the arts. Mm. So um, 
I had a theater company in Chicago for a bit with some friends. I realized as we were trying to build um, this theater company, which was at the time in a neighborhood called Logan Square, which is now a very posh neighborhood in Chicago. But Logan Square in the 1980s was a really, really rough neighborhood that we got a a cheap rent for um, the the Griffin Theater Company. And so I, I started to realize that politics, especially in Chicago, were also quite interesting Hmm. as we were trying to sort of um, play the game of the aldermen of, uh, you know, be a shame if someone fell down the steps. Uh, (laughs) What's that going to cost us now? I wanted to be a mom. So uh, I was approaching 30 and um, became a mom. While I was up, I have two kids. They're 26 and 23. And while my kids were living with me, I um, found real joy and interest in local um, politics in suburban Chicago and had been working for public speaking and organizing on several local campaigns throughout the 2000s and the um, and the teens. I also did a lot of teaching in the preschool level, and I brought um, what I learned from working in the theater world into my preschool teaching. I had a very sort of um, on-your-feet dynamic way of, of trying to teach and reach kids in the preschool level, and I found a tremendous amount of joy from that. So I also um, recently... Before the pandemic hit, I was working on a performance piece, sort of a one-woman play. And the title is, I I still, it's on a back burner, but I'm still wanting to work on it. It's called My Jimmy Carter Friendship. And it's about uh, being a person my age who was born on the the cusp of being a baby boomer and Mm -hmm. being a Gen Xer and having our 1970s childhood be very free to be you and me. And just as we entered high school, boom, our whole reality did a sort of a, a 360, a 180 or whatever, that, that all of a sudden the Reagan years started and everything we had been taught as children, how the world worked now suddenly all switched very quickly. Um, so I hope to get back to that someday soon. Um, I've been working on a project mainly about living in the pandemic as a uh, progressive Democrat and some of the changes I have found internally during the pandemic, just watching politics and health unfold. But the reason you asked me here today was about food addiction. So as I said, I wear, <laughs> I've worn many hats in my 56 years. Um, well, there's but a that, lot yeah. of yeah, there's a lot of interesting things in there. So I, I do want to unpack some of them before we even get to the food <laughs> right, addiction. So right. <laughs> when I was reading your bio, I was like, oh, this is actually some interesting stuff. You know, so wh- when you mentioned that after graduating drama school, you spent three years of soul crushing auditions. Yes. Are, are we talking about like re- lots of rejection? What did you mean by that? Well, when you sent me the question that I did not overprepare for, I just gave it a quick glance. I said, mm-hmm. you know, that would be the first response. And the thing was, it really wasn't about rejection. I actually did land some commercial work. Hmm. I think for me, after graduating from um, a conservatory where it was very classic, trained stage serious things at the DePaul Goodman School of Drama, as it was called back then. 
what what the school didn't do was prepare you for the business of show. Mm. And so they gave you, I could recite, you know, classical theater. I could tell you, you know, techniques. I could tell you how to throw your voice. I did beautiful work, Playboy of the Western world. I per- all these classic plays. And all of a sudden we were released to the hounds of agents and casting directors with a Bachelor of Fine Arts in our hands. And we didn't know as students the first thing about being an actor, the business, you are essentially your own small business. Hmm. And that was never reflected to us. And so it was a really, um, it, it was a kind of experience where it, when I was in high school, I went to college straight out of high school. So a lot of us that went to this conservatory at DePaul Goodman School of Drama, you had, you had to be asked to, to attend the school and audition. A lot of us were, you know, very, big fish in small ponds in high school. And so uh, uh, going to a small university, again, big fish in a, in a small pond, um, we didn't realize that being an actor, that no one prepared us for that business sense. So no one prepared us for, okay, what most of your job is going to be is not to be preparing a Caliban monologue from Shakespeare. It is going to be walking into an audition. And for example, I'll do one audition. It's, it's 1988 and it's there a large screen projection TV. And you're going to have someone look at you and go, tell me how much you love that TV. Go and really gush over it. And I just remember going to several auditions, especially for this large screen TV. And I remember mid-sentence, I, I literally, I was pouring my heart out I'm like, oh my God, the color, the contraction, I can control the color, the sound. <laughs> and, and, and mid-sentence, I just went, oh my God, what am I doing? What has happened? This is this is what I've chosen for my profession. I have just graduated with the Bachelors of Fine Arts, and this is what I'm doing. The soul crushing part was just realizing as I was going to audition or audition or landing a job, for example, um, landing a McDonald's industrial where I was going to be the drive through girl and I was going to be filming all day for new employees or executives to talk about McDonald's protocols and whatever. And so I, I spending 10 hours that day going, here's your change, sir. Have a great day. Again, just had this epiphany like, I, I'm i in the wrong business. And, and people that make it in show business, you know, they've all done this work. And, you know, very few do land into something of even just being a working actor where I now can pay all my bills. Mm-hmm. It, it is such a fickle business. But I realized that people that really wanted to do nothing else business-wise in their lives but act they could do this with a smile on their face and they could they could revel in it they could enjoy it i i started to feel like whenever the phone would ring and back then the old answering machine you know i could listen to it and if it would be an agent going hey there's a man from a store there was a store in the midwest called main street there's someone from main street that saw another piece of work you did and he wants to hire you for this commercial mm. and i remember giancarlo not calling back not even calling back and i just mm. i said why am i doing this um also in the 80s it was just being a young woman 
um, working in a big city and acting. There were casting directors and agents that um, really took advantage of their status and their power. Mm. And there were no protections back then. And um, just the uh, casting directors who f- found it to be their business that to just touch your face, pinch your dress, to look at your bus line. And I just, I just realized, I said, I, I, I can't do this because this is not important to me. Acting is not that important to me where I want to be in this business because I don't feel a passion for this business. Even Mm. though I love performing, I love storytelling. I love speaking with an audience. I just said, I need to find some other way to channel what I thought at age 18 when I graduated from high school what I thought I wanted to do at that point, when I got into the field and practicum, this is not what I want to do. Right. No, that all makes perfect sense. Like even as you say it, you know, and I was writing the question, I think that resonates with a lot of artists that they grow up wanting to do this art because of the love of the craft. And then they find that the business side of it is repulsive to them. (laughs) (laughs) You know, that's that's a great word to use. And it's not mincing words. It's a truthful word. There was some of it that was just absolutely repulsive. And even before, I think a week before I graduated from college, DePaul University for its acting conservatory students, they had a a showcase where they would have you perform, uh, prepare a monologue and perform it for all the big wigs in Chicago, casting directors, um, talent agents. And so I wrote my own piece because I also um, enjoy writing. So I wrote my own monologue and I I made sure that agents knew, hey, I, I can write and I can act. So I always knew, Giancarlo, that I had the chops for creativity. What I didn't have the chops for was go schmooze. Mm. They're all sitting there at the end for this little coffee. Now your job is to go schmooze. I just wanted to talk to people and say, hi, I'm Wendy Geldner. Do you, did you, did you like my, my piece? Do mm-hmm. you think you could get any work? I just wanted to cut through the BS and just say, do you think you have any work for me? But I was, we were all this, ca- this class of 22 kids were instructed by the audition coach you can't just do that. You have to have an a angle or a hook, or mm-hmm. this is what this one likes to see. I, I, so I, the people that came out of my school that were successful in the business were the ones that knew how to do that. And I, ha, I, I applaud them. They had that gift. They had the gift of schmoozing and they knew as they were in that school that it was a business, but I, I never really got that memo. Right. You know, my, our grandfather, Deborah and I's grandfather, you know, he was an artist and I was speaking to my uncle about him and he was saying, you know, he was a master painter. He knew Salvador Dali and these other guys, but he said Salvador Dali and Picasso, they knew how to self-promote whereas my grandfather couldn't be bothered. (laughs) Like (laughs) he said he would paint and he painted a bunch of presidents in South America and Europe. Winston Churchill, he painted all these people yeah. and he would make he would make his money and 
And then he wouldn't paint again until my grandmother would complain about money problems. And then he'd go <laughs> paint again. You know, he just didn't have the uh, <laughs> that tenacity to go out there and, and uh, you know, make a name for himself, you know. But you're right. That's part of the business and, and talking to people and, as you said, schmoozing, you know. And what I, what I realized later, many years later as an adult, is when I care about something, I can go out there and sell and schmooze until the cows come home. Mm. That's that's when I realized I'm in the wrong profession because I just don't care enough. I didn't care enough about just being an actor. Mm. So when I got involved in more local politics and things that I really had a passion for, I could go out there. For example, one suburb that me and in the family were living in was having a school referendum. This was during the no child left behind years. Mm-hmm. Um, and so um, we were living in a suburb called Displains, which is a very working class suburbs right on the border of the city of Chicago. And at this point, no child left behind was defunding schools that weren't performing up to code mm-hmm. and, um, and giving those blanket, standardized test and judging schools on one test. And so the problem was, is the school was losing a tax revenue from its suburb. And so they were going to hit up the local residents for just an extra $45 a year based on $100,000 and, you know, and property tax um, revenue. I campaigned and did public speaking all over town for this, for this referendum. And because it was selling, it was selling a vote, it was selling a program. And mm-hmm. so I realized when I when something means something to me, I can use the talents that I learned to communicate those. But just being a part of going to pilot season in Los Angeles, I didn't care. I didn't give a shit. So right. I just like, <laughs> and, and I got happy for my friends. They're like, oh, I landed a pilot. I'm like, I'm happy for you. But, mm-hmm. it, but, but Wendy Geldner at the time didn't care. So I just, I was in the wrong profession. So let me ask you, because you, you say you didn't care enough, but you did care enough to start your own theater company. So what was that experience like? Is this predating oh. your involvement with the local politics this does yes um i still lived in the city at the time i got involved in local politics when we moved to the suburbs so when i was still living in the city of chicago and this it wasn't a clean break when i started the theater company with some other friends i was still trying to do commercial acting so I had a couple friends that were directors that had graduated from DePaul a couple years before I did. They were starting a theater company, as I said in the intro, in um, a really rough neighborhood because it was a huge space and the rent was cheap. And so I said, yeah, I, they asked me, do you want to be a part of this? And I said, I do. Um, so we got the space and through the help of 10 other people, and this was in 1988, got the help of other actors and two directors, one um, producer, the the two bills, we called them. We uh, took an old space and hung drywall and built a set, built a, a stage, built risers, mm-hmm. um, had to work on the electrical system. And it was a really um, great experience for a while. 
until it, it, some of the um, actors that were involved with uh, this theater, um, the, the two guys that started the two bills, they wanted not so much for us to be an ensemble. What they wanted the actors who were part of the artists and residents of this theater to be is they wanted us to accept a, um, when, when, so let's say we did five shows a year for a season. Uh, they wanted that every show every play would be open audition for outside actors so just because we were part of the theater company didn't necessarily mean we're going to be in all the shows and for a few years i was like okay i can do this because i loved being in the theater i loved again i loved the craft of acting so if there were some shows that I didn't get cast in. I was running the soundboard or I was running the light board or I was doing sales, you know, selling uh, promotions for the script mm-hmm. uh, for the, I'm sorry, for the program. And, and, and so I, I found that I really still loved being in the theater. It got to be after three years um, around in the, yeah, in the early 90s, it got to be a bit of a grind after a while, especially when the the head director was really trying to um, take this theater company, let's say, to the next level, which he's wanted more big names to be performing in the theater. So he was accepting more and more outside actors to come and do the work. And basically, it, and so the artists and residents who really were just actors were like, I, we understand what you're trying to do, but you have to kind of throw us a bone too. And let us at least showcase our work um, mm-hmm. a little more than just, you know, you're going to be the walk on bell lady. Um, but then I want, you know, we're all going to be here. So, so what started off to be a beautiful sort of collective um, contractually, the way this theater company started, the two Bills, who were the producer and the um, artistic director, mm-hmm. really wanted to take it to a different direction. And so by then, as as I said, I was pushing 30 and I said, you know, I had just gotten married and I said, do I want to keep hanging lights every couple months until two o'clock in the morning? So I just had an amicable part with the Griffin Theater and um, had a baby and moved to the suburbs and started doing other things. Hey, everybody. I just wanted to take the time to let you know about my latest book. It's called Massimo's Mirror and Other Stories. It's my first collection of short stories. The book uses fantasy, science fiction, and fairy tales to create a world where a magical array of protagonists conquer their fears, battle forces of evil, and step up to meet their potential. Suitable for the secular and religious alike, these stories are full of symbolism and quirky characters, including aliens, robots, angels, demons, superheroes, gods, animals, giants, monsters, and dragons, and just the right length to hold the attention of children and adults alike. All 50 stories are crafted to entertain and make us see behind the veil of reality and perhaps teach something along the way. The ebook and paperback editions are available on Amazon. You can purchase an autographed copy on my website, storykingbooks.com. Also, if you sign up on Story King Books with your email, you'll get a free copy of my latest PDF resource, Launch Your Podcast Like a Pro. And now back to today's episode. 
switching gears because I did want to talk about I, I've been interested in the subject of addiction for this season and it's a couple of people I've, I've spoken to and I understand you have some personal experience with food addiction so yes. I'd like to talk about that would that be considered a behavioral addiction in the realm of gambling or is there a chemical component to it as well you know I've been thinking about that today because that's an excellent question because food addiction is is a tricky one mm -hmm. um because you still have to eat food to live it's right. not like you can just be completely abstinent I did sort of look under medical periodicals about this topic and the, the one thing that came up about it was um, food addiction is a chemical and behavioral cluster of chemical dependencies on specific foods um, after the ingestion of highly palatable foods like sugar, white flour, fat, and salt, the brains of some people develop a physical craving for these foods. Okay. So, but I also think there's behavioral components to it. So it, I, Again, this is what WebMD said when, when you posed the question for me. So I, I think <laughs> it it's a dopamine raise. It's the endorphins mm -hmm. being raised. I think for people that have a true compulsive overeating food addiction and those are just like, oh, I, you know, I ate too much lasagna tonight. I'm a pig. The difference <laughs> is, is the compulsion around thinking about food, the compulsion of how you feel after eating some of these triggering foods, mm. um, that it's not just like, oh, this is yummy. I want more. You truly are getting a chemical reaction. Like, like It's almost like getting high. Right. So, which is kind of like how every addiction works, right? Right. So it's it's interesting because I, I wasn't expecting that, that there are specific foods. And it reminds me, I don't know if you've ever seen the documentary Supersize Me. Oh, God, that's a great one. Yeah. Yeah. You know, and I remember I don't, I don't I don't remember how long his eating McDonald's only went. I think it was like a month or something. It was 30 days. Yeah. 30 days. Mm -hmm. And he started feeling like this addiction, you know, towards yeah. the, like the soda and towards the everything. You know, he'd eat nothing but McDonald's, which is just. It was really gross <laughs> it was it's just, gross. just to think about it, but it was very interesting. So that's what it sounds like to me that there are specific foods. So the fact that you said there are certain foods that makes it a little bit easier, right? To Because, you know, first of all, how does one even get addicted to food? Like why food? You know, I, I've heard that addictions right. generally, you know, are considered an unhealthy form of self-medication in other words yes you know provide some type of comfort or relief from some unwanted emotional or mental state w w is that fair to say i think so i think mm -hmm. so and being someone who is a compulsive overeater and it's an addiction that i will be in <laughs> I, I hate the word battle because it's really not, it's not a fight. It's just an acceptance and a, and a decision to wake up every day and say, am I going to just like any other addict, am I going to use or not use today? Hmm. Um, but how I think for me, how it began when I started to realize that my relationship with food was different than other people I knew, I think it started in puberty. And it started with um, the, my first experience of overeating was um, 
I, I think I was about 12. Yeah, 11 or 12 when like pre-teenhood had just started. And my parents used to love to go to this one Italian restaurant across the street from our house. We'd go there all the time. And I remember that I discovered, Grant, this is the Midwest in the 1970s. So I had never heard of something called linguine before. We just knew what <laughs> spaghetti was. So I'm like, linguine. And I asked the waiter, I said, what's that? He's like, well, it's like flat spaghetti. I'm like, oh, well, give me that. And so I just remember they brought me this giant adult portion and I took a few bites and I just remember feeling like, oh, this makes me feel really good. Mm. And I just kept eating and eating and eating and eating until I felt so full that I was almost sick, but my brain felt really good. Like, oh, that was a fantastic feeling. And I remember my mom and dad looked at me like, you ate that whole thing? <laughs> right. <laughs> um, I'll, uh, also, a lot of women who have food addictions, there's also trauma in their lives. And um, I'm sure my parents won't be listening to this, but I did grow up in a bit of an unstable home with some violence. Mm. And so when I did discover that overeating gave me this, like this feeling of euphoria that almost did become a way of escapism. Uh, I remember the next time my mother commenting on my eating, I was 14 and we had just bought our first microwave oven and I discovered <laughs> that, Hey, if you take string cheese and rip it up and stick it on white bread and stick it in the microwave, you've got an instant grilled cheese. And I remember, and it's real mushy in the microwave too. This new microwave had a, a really new way of making food taste and in, in different textures. So I remember making one sandwich and then two sandwiches and then three sandwiches until she could hear the microwave dinging from downstairs. And she came up and she said, Wendy, how many of those sandwiches have you had? And I went, three, I'm, I, I'm really hungry. And she went, no, that's not hungry. You're just eating to eat. Stop it. And that really started the trigger for me. I had a father too, who was a marathon runner when I was going through puberty. And that was a perfect storm because he, he got involved. He actually was one of the designers of the first Chicago marathon in 1977. This is when marathoning was a new thing. So he went whole hog in the whole marathoning wellness basically, you know, be as skinny as possible to run 26 miles once a month sort of life. Mm -hmm. And so I had always been a very tall olive oil, skinny child. Well, when puberty hit, all of a sudden I grew curbs. I wasn't overweight. I just got extremely curvy, big Eastern European body. All of a sudden I developed overnight. And so my father, I remember I came home, it was sixth grade, still in elementary school. I came home. My father was home early that day. He had a pair of Brooks running shoes for me. And he goes, these are your running shoes. And this is your map. You're getting fat. And I want you to start running every day after school. Wow. And I just went, you know what, dad, beep you. <laughs> <laughs> and so to me, that was the when the relationship already, I believe there was a chemical component to what was happening to, to me eating, especially white flour, like bread and pasta is that that that's my biggest trigger. Mm. But the behavioral aspect of food, it, I think for me, there was a fusion of those two. I see. 
And it sounds sim- that the two statements your parents made were kind of similar. Like your your mom said, you're just eating to eat. And right. that was a trigger for you. And then your dad said, bought you running shoes and told you you're getting fat. And it's kind of a similar sentiment. Exactly. Coming exactly. from both of them. Okay. Right. So when you're 10, 11, 12 years old and your parents are giving you that message, mm-hmm. that is something that you translated. Okay. Well, they're my parents, my, my, you know, <laughs> my guardians who I look up to, obviously there's something wrong. And so did you resent them immediately for that? Oh, yes, I did. I felt like, first of all, when my mom sort of caught me with the grilled cheese, I knew sort of instinctually that I wasn't eating just to have lunch. I knew that I was eating for this sort of euphoric uh, experience. Mm -hmm. But what made, I guess at, at the time, what made me angry is like that she caught me, but also the sadness that she didn't look at me and say, no, no, honey, what are you doing? Let's talk about why you're doing this, you know, Mm -hmm. that it was just a me like, just stop it. Just stop. So so I know that women with food addictions, they do there. They have these messages that they get in the past um, about the fact that if you do overeat, you know, you're not a good, especially growing up at the time I did, you know, the body image stuff was really really bad back then in the seventies about staying thin. Anytime a woman had curves, it was considered like, Oh, you're getting chubby. And it just, it was your family. And especially my grandparents, anyone had carte blanche and license to tell you as a woman, how big you were, that was just acceptable. Right. (laughs) Right. Right. And and having two children now, they can't, you know, that grew up in a different time. They can't understand like, what do you mean? Like dad would just call you fat. I'm like, he would just look at me and say, you're fat. <laughs> you <know>? right, right. <laughs> it was just like, well, what do you want me to say? You're getting fat. Um, right. So, so I, I know too, having, cause I've been in therapy and I have gone to some support groups for um, compulsive overeating. And I'd say nine tenths, the women there too had um, trauma in their lives. And, um, and definitely too, my parents, were teenagers when I was born and just, um, they were not ready to be parents, not to excuse instability in the home. Cause a lot of people in the sixties had kids young, but my parents truly were not ready to be parents. And, um, having parents that were growing up with their kids emotionally and psychologically for the children in that home. And just wasn't, it wasn't, um, it wasn't joyous. We we were living at the time. My first seven years were in a very small time, small town, rural Wisconsin, and my father had worked for the government. He worked for a social program that helped rural teens who were in crisis. And I lived. The town was called Soldiers Grove, Wisconsin. It had five hundred and fourteen people. I lived as a small child as a country girl, free range. We had a Dalmatian dog and me and this dog would walk. It looked like a tiny Mayberry. I would walk around the town free range all day, every day. My neighbors had horses. I would ride bareback, just ride a horse to my house, have lunch, get back on the horse. Well, my father's job when Nixon became president, he cut these social programs and my father had, there was no work in the Kickapoo Valley of Wisconsin. So he found a job at the Lincoln Belmont YMCA in Chicago. 
And so we moved to Cook County, Illinois, which is, we were living right next to Chicago. So my father being in his, my parents were in their mid twenties at the time we moved and they had two children. I was seven. My brother was three. Uh, My father discovered as a small town man, he was now working (laughs) strange hours in the city of Chicago in the seventies. He was like a kid in the candy store. So he, there was a lot of instability in our house, a lot of dad not coming around, a lot of fighting when he would, would show up, you know, in the 1970s, uh, there was a lot of sort of wife swapping going on and growing up. And I know your cousin, Debbie, we talk about this lot, a lot being children of the seventies that just what our parents as older baby boomers thought was they're free to be you and me sometimes had a negative effect on their children trying to grow up in that environment. Um, So, so when I was talking in support groups about my compulsive overeating, we would, we would all, try to unpack when we thought these behaviors started. And it really did for me started in puberty when I felt I had no control over my changing body and I didn't like the way my body was changing and food was a way for me to sort of escape and temporarily feel better. Hmm. And so you mentioned groups. So there are groups for, for food addicts and are are they similar to like, other groups of with of other addictions or they're- well they they uh, there's well there's overeaters anonymous and they follow the twelve steps like like AA does oh okay they you know not every group is is applicable to everybody you can also find uh, local hospitals. Um, now again, pre-COVID, would have sometimes outpatient programs for compulsive overeaters that weren't so much 12-step, they were more doctor-led, whereas an OA is peer-led because it's the anonymous program. Both are are good paths to take. Um, What makes it different from something like Weight Watchers is Weight Watchers is truly a program for someone who wants to just, you know, lose weight and do the point system. And, oh, I can still have chocolate ice cream. When you have food addictions, what you, the difference is, is it's not just counting points and calories. It really is. It's a mental issue. It's not just a, oh, my ass got fat issue. Right. (laughs) Um, (laughs) The the different, you have to approach it from the psychology of it's not just that I'm overeating. It's what am I eating? Why am I eating it? And what inside am I trying to stuff? Hmm. Because you really are trying to stuff bad emotions, bad memories, and an unresolved pain. That is really what you're trying to stuff. It, to me, it's like eating half a tray of lasagna is sort of metaphorical for stuffing this whole of unresolved sadness and pain that when you have a difficult childhood, sometimes it's just, it's a mechanism to do. And I think too, when, when you're a a woman trying to raise two kids, it's, it's often something that you can abuse because you're, you're still able to drive your car and you're sober and you go to bed and you can take care of your kids, but you can really tune out compulsively overeating and it be a true addict while still functioning. The problem is that you are becoming so physically unhealthy that eventually it will catch up with you. 
And our other food addicts, do they have similar food triggers? Like you said, yours is bread and pasta, white flour. Is that a common one or are they all different kinds? Well, the, the WebMD says like salt and fat. I disagree. The, the people I know who are true compulsive food addicts, it really is carbohydrates, white. It, it's, it's because when you eat carbohydrates, a white flour, sugar, you get an immediate rush. Whereas you're eating more complex whole grains, you don't get that. It's a more sustained release of carbohydrates and glucose. You truly are playing with your blood sugar, making it go up, down, up, down. You eat a whole thing of lasagna or a whole thing of spaghetti and you're buzzing. You're, you're almost buzzing like, wow, because you have artificially caused your blood sugar to shoot up so fast because you've had the same amount of food that maybe four people have had in a very short amount of time. Right. And, you know, it's mentioned that you, you saw it as a metaphor of like filling the the void in, in your life. And I think that's really a profound way to, to describe it. I mean, so how does one even go about stopping to be addicted to food because as we said it's not like alcohol where where you can just go cold turkey on it or or uh, or gambling where you don't it's an activity you don't need to do you know you do need to eat so i mean is it like if you just stay away from whatever your trigger food is that like one of the strategies or well there's a few different strategies and Mm -hmm. i recommend talking it over with a therapist that understands food addiction and that can guide you to what to what is realistic because oftentimes people with food addictions will say i'm never going to eat this 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 and this and sometimes you know in 365 days a year it's just not possible to let's say go out to eat with friends and oh we're at a restaurant that's a greek restaurant i'm uh, what what am i going to be able to eat here um some of the tips i have for for people with food addiction is first of all, realize that this is going to be up and down your whole life because, mm. because of the tricky nature of food. I don't know anyone who um, compulsively overeats chicken breast or compulsively overeats broccoli. You know, mm-hmm. It truly is the carbohydrate spike from white flour and sugar. What has been helpful for me when I am having successful chunks in my life where I am not, quote unquote, using food, but following a food plan is first what I have done is I have identified honestly, what are the foods I eat that I don't eat for nourishment or hunger that I eat to escape, that I eat to fill the void, to fill the hole. I identify those foods. And I say, and I, and I basically tell myself, here is what my food plan for the day is. I am going to, and, and, and to be successful, I tell myself the food plan, what is breakfast, what is lunch, what is dinner, what's the mid-afternoon snack. And I make sure that all the food groups are represented. I make sure that the foods that I am triggered by that I am just not having. For example, so if if white flour is my trigger, let's say pasta, mm-hmm. I make sure at dinner that I have so many ounces of a protein, so many ounces of a carbohydrate, and then 
tons of vegetables. Vegetables to me are the, that's the filler, but the, the difference is from weight. It's not just about counting the points. It's about the psychology of, I don't want to abuse food. I just want to eat. So I have to set up the day ahead of time, like go to bed and say, okay, what's tomorrow's food plan. So when you have a food addiction, it's not like, oh, I'm just going to pull off the road and go to Chipotle and get something. Because what happens then is you start to, let's say, I'll just get a, oh, there's, I'll get the bowl because there's no tortilla with the bowl. Mm. But sometimes the rice in the bowl will still have that trigger because it's a, it's a, it's a white grain. It's a grain that's high glycemic. When you have a food addiction, you really need to know ahead of time what you're walking into and prepare that, that the restaurant that you're going into can prepare a food for you. That's going to be part of your food plan. Now, sometimes a food plan, you're not going to be able, like, let's say if you go on vacation, okay. Like my husband and I, we were just um, in Florida in, in October and we were, you know, going out to eat several times, you know, several times we had breakfast at home and lunch on the beach and then dinner out. And so it's just, it's making the choices. And then if you do encounter those foods that you know are trigger foods, you you take what is considered a healthy portion of those foods and you put aside the rest and you say, I don't, I don't need to eat this entire plate. This is what I'm going to eat. Now, there are some people that, especially those in OA, that truly cannot ever have their trigger foods ever. And so Mm. they are on very strict food plans where they abstain completely from trigger foods. It really is working with with a therapist and understanding how you can emotionally, because also food food is pleasure. Food is community with other people. So you also don't want to cut yourself off from community. You, every culture has food as their centerpiece of celebration. Mm -hmm. So it is finding a way to enjoy the act of eating, but the psychology behind it is I know exactly when I'm sitting down at a restaurant and based on what I have ordered and how I am eating, I know exactly whether I am enjoying the meal or if I am going into a binge. It mm. is the speed in which I'm eating. It is the the choices I've made in lieu of like, I'm going to have a protein and a salad. It's like, oh, well, I'm out to eat. I'm going to have onion rings. Well, just the white flour on those onion rings. I find my, I can find myself keep eating, keeping, I'm no longer hungry. I'm starting to feel full, but it's like, no, I'm going to keep eating, keep eating, keep eating. But that trigger stays in my head. And then a couple hours later, I can feel me starting to go, I need another, I need another hit. Let's, Mm. let's call it a hit. Need another hit. What if I just go to a fast food restaurant, order enough food to feed three people, eat it all in my car, and then just say, okay, I'm not going to do this again. And because you're, you're literally, you're getting high again. Mm. And so that's what I'm saying. It's different than Weight Watchers. It's not just about the food and the points. It's about the psychology of what you're doing and why you're doing it. So it seems like it takes just extreme intentionality when you're yes. going to eat. 
I also found, and thank you, that's intentionality is perfect. I found a lot of help too, sort of in, in the Buddhist act of mindfulness. I'm not mm. a practicing Buddhist, but there has been in my therapy for depression and for um, compulsive overeating, which a lot of people with this this addiction do have, there's underlying depression, mindfulness and radical acceptance, really eating with intention. That is the difference. That is when you know you are eating for pleasure of eating and nourishing and being with community as opposed to gorging on food to fill a hole. And because, and most compulsive eaters, when they're with other people, don't engage in this behavior. Most of the time that behavior is in solitude. Hmm. Now, last question on food addiction. Is there a healthy way to resolve past trauma to fill the hole, you know, rather than with an addiction? Or is it just learning to live with, you know, these uncomfortable emotions? That's a great question. Um, and, and, and it's a journey. First of all, it's recognizing that it's okay to have emotions. I, especially for, for women, I know what happened to me going through the change of life. Um, when hormones are really doing things to your brain and body that are very confusing, and there's not a lot of medical help for women going through change. That's when things start spiking too with women with trauma. All of a sudden, when I was going through my change of life, I started having memories from my childhood that I, I guess were just suppressed in the backlog of my brain for decades. And so what I found is first realizing that it's okay to have sadness and anger and grief and emotion around bad memories from your childhood. Mm -hmm. I would suggest if the emotions become such that you find yourself engaging more and more in addictive behaviors, especially in compulsive overeating, when you're in solitude, seek a therapist who understands compulsive overeating. And you will always have these memories and realize that because you've already engaged in these compulsive behaviors around these memories, realize without judgment that this has been a coping mechanism for you. Forgive yourself for this sometimes physically and psychologically destructive coping mechanism that you have, for whatever reason, been genetically predispositioned for or behaviorally have engaged in. But start to incorporate what happened to you and who you are, and even incorporate your food addiction into part of and part of your story, mate. Right. <laughs> my friend Ed in Australia, because there is a either with any addiction, there's a component of shame, and especially mm -hmm. when your weight fluctuates up and down, and people that know you are like, okay, you you are obviously probably using again, based on what size clothing you're wearing now, realize it's a journey and there's going to be good times with a recovery and there's going to be really bad times. And as anyone with addiction going through the COVID-19 isolation has been a horrible time for anyone with addiction. Mm -hmm. um, as anyone can tell you that deals with any kind of therapy or depression or addictive behavior, Zoom and telehealth might work for, I think I have strep throat, but it doesn't really work that well 
for long-term addiction and, and fellowship in that regard. It, mm-hmm. You need to be with people 3D. You really do. Absolutely. Now, you mentioned COVID-19. We don't have a lot of time, but I, I did want to, it was such a, an engaging title, <laughs> working title, <laughs> the book that you're working on. For those that want it, how policies, protocols, politics, and propaganda of COVID-19 began the democratic diaspora. So what do you mean by that? What's going on with this book? <laughs> well, thank you. Um, <laughs> yes, it is It is still in the works because the story is not done yet. Um, what happened is as I was home during the pandemic, um, back in December of 2020, when the um, the vaccines were first rolled out, mm-hmm. I, I had we as we all did had hope for okay here we go we're going to see an end to what's going on, but being who I was, I was like let me just sit back and and see what's going on. Mm-hmm. So I took copious notes daily. I watched. Um, the uh, White House, once once Biden got into the office, we were having regular updates. I watched the White House uh, task force meetings every day. I recorded what my daily newspaper was saying. And I just started listening to people. And I started listening to people who thought, you know what? COVID-19 is this brand new virus we all want this to end, but let's let's just sit back and, and see what's going to happen. So taking notes for a year, uh, it has dawned on me, um, and I don't want to get too much in the weeds about this because this could be a whole other show. Right. Um, without getting too much in the weeds, I have seen people that were like me, left-wing progressive Democrats really start to feel that the prolonged lockdowns that have happened to us. Now, I live in a very blue county. In fact, we have vaccine passports for just going to the movie theaters. Mm -hmm. Um, And we've been vaccinated or not in masks since August, and that has not gone away at all. Um, I have the whole county was just rip roaring with COVID-19 December and and now, Mm -hmm. um, regardless of vaccination status. So what I mean about the democratic diaspora is um, I started communicating with people through social media on Twitter, people in New York city, people in Los Angeles, people in San Francisco, people in Chicago, like myself, who were um, all Democrats. And a lot of them uh, were younger than me and are still, they have children in schools and we there are people who are pro science, pro progress, pro vaccination, who have felt that the um, protocols around this pandemic, based on the actual raw data of percentage of people who are hospitalized and dying, versus people who have recovered from COVID, what was happening to the prolonged lockdowns, isolation, school closures and prolonged masking for kids two and up was detrimental. Mm-hmm. And so I have found a community of people who are lo- lifelong Dems that are said, if this is what my party supports, ignoring 
all of the CDC's own determinant of health, uh, determinants of health to chase, yes, a serious respiratory virus, but to just shut down our society for two years to chase one virus like Captain Ahab and the white whale and everything else in life be damned. We don't understand what our party is doing anymore. Hmm. And you have a democratic diaspora of people leaving California, New York, and, and Illinois, the three biggest blue states in the, in the nation, for places like Tennessee, Texas, Florida, South Carolina. And these are, these are progressives. And they have said, I am leaving because I feel like Democrats in my community don't care about anything anymore but COVID-19. And my children have regressed we have in Chicago, I was talking with a pediatrician that works in Southwest suburban Yorkville, and I'll keep her anonymous, but she did share with me that the pediatric, this, these are not even teens, the pediatric psych wards in Chicagoland right now are on a waiting list because so many children are in crisis. Mm. And so that is what my story is about. What, again, it's not ended. The story is about my journey as a left-wing progressive Democrat watching my party champion for de- ignoring all the determinants of health for, for you know, a, over a year now, Biden's been in office for a year, to, to mandating not just a vaccine, but almost mandating a way of life and a thought process. And I speak for as that from someone who is, you know, voted Democrat my whole life. And so I have I have had a real leaving the party. I'm now an independent awakening with other people in large blue cities. And I I, I like these other people will be leaving Chicago someday. I I feel I just feel like there has been a real psychosis, sort of a collective psychosis that mm-hmm. has happened in big blue cities right now. And it breaks my heart because the same people that I championed decades ago to get into office and champion for progressive values are the same people that now politically, everything else be damned, people are dying. We have to stop this illness. No one's denying that COVID-19 isn't real and that people died. That It's mm-hmm. tragic. What we're saying is, as as a country, how do we move forward with all our determinants of health and not just one virus? So that is going to be my book, is my journey and how my politics have changed, just sitting back and watching the messaging from my former party change into something that I truly don't recognize anymore. That sounds... I, I mean, I definitely encourage you to finish that book because not only is it an important subject, but I also think your perspective is important and kind of, I guess I wouldn't say rare because, you know, uh, at least uh, other other people like yourself, but it's not really spoken of, you know, so you're kind of, no. yeah, you're kind of, I'm, you might be the quiet majority, <laughs> you, you know, I, I don't know, or you're just a significant minority, but I think it's an important important enough to to finish the book and and put it out there. I, I would love to to read it, so I encourage you to uh, to keep working on that. I will, and like I said, I want the ending to be a good one 
But right now it's with, with mandates getting larger in my city, as opposed to uh, all of us realizing that we are kind of in an endemic stage right now and protecting the vulnerable is, is the way to go. We're not heading in that direction in Chicago right now. And when you have um, in, in suburban cook right now, as of mid December, you had 48% of people of color that have actively have said, no, thank you. I have had COVID-19 and I, as a person of color, do not want this vaccine that mm-hmm. are now being the whole County. You can't, you, you, you are shut out of basically anything, but going to school or the grocery store right now. So coming from the party of equity and social justice, I find this troubling, very troubling. Right. I mean, there's a lot of, uh, racist outcomes that might not be intentional, but the right. outcomes automatically result in that, you know, it, it's kind of like, uh, I, I speak about it with uh, my wife and other friends, you know, it's like when they were treating crack and cocaine so differently in the eighties, yeah, it resulted automatically in just more people of color getting arrested than right. white people because of where cocaine was considered, you know, the, the, uh, the rich drug and, and crack was, was in, no, oh, absolutely. Know, predominantly minority neighborhood. So, you know, th- those are things that cause systemic racism, you know, so, but you're right. This is uh can make up its own uh, podcast episode. So we'll, leave, <laughs> yeah, we'll like leave it at that for a moment before we go <laughs> absolutely. Too, too crazy on it. <laughs> but yeah. yeah, very interesting stuff. So any final thoughts for the listener? I, I think final thoughts is just um, no matter how difficult life is, whether you have addiction or whether, in my case, you um, have an addiction and, and, and you feel like your community no longer backs your way of thinking, my, my advice is walk in your truth, that you will feel better at the end of the day, no matter how many friends you might lose, walk in your truth. Walk in your truth. Awesome. Last question. This is just a fun one. I ask everyone, if you could have any superpower, what would it be and why? If I had any superpower and perhaps, well, in my universe, this is a superpower. I would have the ability to very quickly go to another planet outside of our solar system, spend Mm. time with what other beings might be there, and then to come back to suburban Chicago and share what I've learned. That's an awesome one. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> that's Nobody, my superpower <laughs> nobody's uh nobody said that one so that's a pretty cool <laughs> Ooh, i'm glad i'm glad i was the first so when if people wanted to connect with you online how can they do that they can find me on my facebook page wendy geldner hermes or they can find me on twitter my twitter handle is the old group shanana my twitter is bowser is my mm. co-pilot <laughs> Got it. So I'm going to make sure all those links will be in the show notes. Wendy, thank you so much for coming on the Story King podcast and sharing your story with us. I really appreciate it. Oh, my pleasure. And thank you so much for having me, Giancarlo. So that was my conversation with Wendy Geldner Hermes. I'll make sure her links are in the show notes. Don't forget to check out storykingbooks.com. 
Also, you can follow us on Instagram. The username is storyking.podcast. I post weekly short stories, writing tips, and quotes from famous authors. You don't want to miss that. And please click like on our Facebook page. We're at facebook.com forward slash storykingpodcast. If you'd like to be a part of what we're doing with this show, please consider becoming a patron. You could choose a monthly membership tier at www.patreon.com forward slash thestoryking. All those links I just mentioned will be in the show notes. One more thing, if you're enjoying this podcast, please do me the favor of sharing the show with your friends and on social media, subscribing to it, and leaving a positive review on iTunes, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts. I would greatly appreciate it. Thank you for listening to the Story King Podcast, a show about the art and business of storytelling and living life. Please join us next time. Until then. Until then.